And if you turn uh, in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5, that's page uh, 968 in the Church Bibles. And if you're in the large print, that's 1506. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look this evening at verses 27 uh, to verse 30. Now there are uh, many uh, gods, small g, in our age. Uh, False gods that claim the allegiance of people and enslave them in their grasp. And of all the gods that people follow, a good case can be made that perhaps sex god has entrapped and enslaved the most. Sex God claims it will give you identity, fulfillment, and freedom. And you can see these claims in our culture. So identity. People identify themselves these days by a sexual orientation. I am whatever you are. You claim to be gay, straight, bisexual, or a gender. If you subscribe to Facebook... I am told there are 71 different types of gender that you can identify yourself as. We identify others by what they look like. Attractive, sexy, ugly, and so on. So often, sex God wants to give us an identity. Well, then there's fulfillment. Sex God tells us that sex can really fulfill you. If you're not having sex by a certain age, you're missing out on the best that life can offer, we are told. You are seen as completely weird if you are a virgin, and there is even, these days, a stigma attached to it, whereas if you have slept with three people this week, you can be patted on the back. That's the culture that we live in. Not only that, but sex is used to sell products. Sex makes the products more fun or alluring. It sells magazines that spills the beans on the sex lives of celebrities. And sex is now mainstream in novels and films. All this because it promises to fulfill us. Read this and it will fulfill you. Do this and it will fulfill you and so on. So it promises us identity, fulfillment and then freedom. Sex God tells us that we are trapped unless we can give ourselves over to our sexual desires. We are fed the lie that you can only be free if you can be yourself and yourself being whatever sexual identity that most fulfills your carnal ambitions. That's the promise that sex God gives to us. But the Bible teaches us that this is a false God. And Jesus tells us here in this passage tonight that it's one that leads us to hell. But not only that, the Bible teaches us that God, the true and living God of the Bible, the one who has come and been among us, has died and has risen from the dead, he is the only one that could give us identity, fulfillment and freedom. And we've seen this even so far in the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Beatitudes where we began... 
It shows us an identity. If we are Christians, our identity is a child of God in the kingdom of heaven. And this encompasses our whole person, not just the sexual side of us. It encompasses our whole person. Who are we as Christians? Well, our character here is in the Beatitudes. And if in, in verse 9, peacemakers are called children of God. Identity. We are children of God. Fulfillment. Well, the Beatitudes are blessings. And in them, God reveals, uh, reveals to us the way to live the best life we can live. The, the good life. The life that he as creator has designed for us to live. And it's only through living in this way that we are fulfilled. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Filled. And then, freedom. Well, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Now you might look at that and think, well hold on a minute, we're now slaves to God, but yes, but we are all slaves to a master. But God is a good master. And as we follow God, we reap holiness and ultimately eternal life. Sin and any uh, God that's not the true and living God leads to destruction. It destroys us. How different is our God to sex God, who we shall see never fulfills, never really identifies, and never gives us freedom? And one of the battles we face as Christians today is the battle to see through the lies that sex God speaks into our culture all the time. And we're going to hopefully see through the word that what God says about sex is true. The true and living God of the Bible is not a killjoy, as often uh, he is perhaps portrayed, but he is a loving creator who wants the best life there is for us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the best life is righteousness. All of these practical aspects in chapter 5 of life in the kingdom of heaven all flow out from chapter 5 and verse 20. Chapter 5 and verse 20, which we've seen before, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the, the, the plan for the kingdom is that God has his people who are righteous. That's the life that God intends for us to live. And last time we saw that in the context of murder, and here tonight we look at adultery. Exceeding righteousness, remember, is about the heart. It's all about the heart. And so this evening we're going to see how Jesus shows how exceeding righteousness relates to an affair of the heart. So let's look at chapter 5, verses 27 uh, to 30. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, 
gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. And before uh, digging deeper into this particular passage, it is helpful that we have some background on what the Bible says more generally about sex. This is because unless we understand the, the bigger picture, we're not able to understand fully the reasons why Jesus says adultery is as serious as we read in verses 29 to 30. And also, this background will help us as we come to what he says about divorce in verses 31 and 32. Now, Christians over history have had a pretty bad reputation when it comes to sex. Sometimes this has been uh, the church's own making, it has to be said. But one of the accusations levelled at us is that often Christians see sex as something that's dirty and something that's evil, but the Bible, on the other hand, clearly see sex as something that is a good thing and it is a gift from God. I'm going to show you some examples from the Bible. This is the Bible that's speaking now. Okay, So, Proverbs chapter 6. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. That's Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And yes, the Bible tells a husband to be satisfied in his wife's breasts. Then, when Paul the Apostle is responding to sexual immorality in the church in Corinth, his remedy might seem quite radical. His remedy is, have sex. This is what he says. But since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And I'm not going to read uh, the whole of Song of Songs, but if you read Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, in part, that book is about the joy of the relationship, of the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. So in the Bible, and that's just a few examples, but through the Bible, sex is portrayed as a beautiful and good thing, a gift from God. But, like with all good gifts from God, there are boundaries which are set for our good. Now, as a couple of examples, food is a gift from God. Okay, Food is a good gift from God. But there are boundaries for food. We can't eat food that will uh, cause us Perhaps if we're allergic to a certain type of food, we can't eat that food. There's a boundary there, isn't there? Now, we, we shouldn't overeat food. There's a boundary there. We have a stomach which gives us a boundary. Some perhaps is bigger than others, but there's a boundary there. God gives us the gift of being able to communicate. But there's boundaries, isn't there? There's inappropriate words that we can use. Every gift from God has a boundary. And sex is a good gift from God... And the boundary God has set for us is marriage. And this is from the very beginning of creation. So we're going to just read uh, briefly some verses from Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, uh, if you're in the church Bibles, that's page 4. Genesis uh, chapter 2. 
And I'm just going to read uh, verses 20 to 25, which is where God establishes marriage. This is where the institution of marriage uh, begins. It's, it, it's created by God. Okay? It's not uh, uh, something that the government introduces. This is God instituting marriage. Genesis chapter 2 from uh, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. Oh, sorry, that's, uh, yeah, that's chapter 3. <laughs> chapter 2, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So let's notice a few things here. Adam named all the animals, but he was alone. There wasn't a helper suitable for him. So God puts him to sleep, and from his side, God creates the woman. And when Adam sees the woman, he is amazed. He's never seen a woman before. And it, it, this is amazing for Adam. This is bone of my bone and, and flesh of my flesh. I don't think we can express here the, the joy that Adam feels as he sees woman. This is, this is a woman. This is an amazing thing for Adam. She was made for him. They fit together. And they are married. In verse 24, they are united as one flesh. And there's, much we, there's much we could say about this passage. But in short, it shows us about sex at the creation when God made it. So first of all, it was in marriage. Notice the order there in verse 24. A man leaves his father and mother... And he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. So the old family is left behind and a new family is created and the sexual union is there, one flesh, after the father and mother has been left. They're married. Secondly, we see sex joins people together. That's what one flesh means. There's, there is more going on here than something casual. We must understand that. Because again, our culture is telling us something totally different here. The Bible's teaching us here that it joins people together. The sexual uh, union is a one flesh relationship. It joins people together in a deeper way. Something is going on and there's nothing casual about this. Notice that sex was between one man and one woman. They are compatible. And the only way that they could fulfill an earlier command to be fruitful and multiply was to be one man and one woman together. And notice in verse 25, this verse is really important when we're thinking about uh, what the Bible says about sex. They were both naked, but they felt no shame. There is no shame in sex in this context. They were married. They were husband and wife. They were one flesh. And in this context, there is no shame. 
So a summary of the Bible's teaching on sex that is, is this, that within the boundaries of marriage, sex is a wonderful gift from God that is to be enjoyed to the full. But anything that is not this, any sex that is not this, is sin. And this is shown in a number of places in the Bible, not least of which uh, is Leviticus chapter 18, where there's a whole list of unlawful sexual relationships that can be summarized with the phrase sexual immorality, which is any sex outside of marriage, as marriage is defined here in Genesis chapter 2. Now, in our culture, as we live today, this is totally against the grain. When we're saying that the Sermon on the Mount is a countercultural message, it is none more so than in Jesus' teaching on adultery. Because when the, what the, when the Bible teaches about what sex is and what marriage is, it, it is saying also a whole bunch of things that are, that are wrong. So homosexuality is sin because it is not part of the creation design. Casual sex is sin. Cohabitation is sin because it's not marriage. Basically, any sex that is outside of the boundaries that God has set for us in Genesis chapter 2 is sin. And we see the consequences in our society of the breakdown of those boundaries that God has set. How many problems are we seeing in our society because of sexual immorality? The pornographic industry, absentee fathers, child sexual exploitation, sexually transmitted disease. We could go on. But before we move back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, I want um, us to realise something else. That this is not negative teaching. This is not, well, don't do this, 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 or this. You can only do this. Often when we're teaching about sex, and especially when we teach it to the, uh, to, when young people get taught this, uh, the, the, the Christian teaching on sex to young people is so often this. Well, don't do it because you might get a sexually transmitted disease or you might get pregnant. But there, there's, there's so many more positive reasons regarding this teaching as to why we stay within the boundaries of God's design. Firstly, sex is designed by God. So God knows how to best use his gift. This means that sex outside of the boundaries of marriage is not only sinful sex, but the logical conclusion is it's not as good sex as if you were in the boundaries of marriage. I mean, it's not just the logical conclusion of what the Bible teaches, but also there is research that bears that out. Secondly, positive. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and his people. And in the New Testament, that is Christ and the church. And it's a beautiful picture of the love that God has for us. And we only have to look at the morning messages in Hosea to see what happens when it goes wrong. But also in the love that God has for us, we can see the beautiful picture, can't we? Of what sex pictures, of the love that God has for his, for his people. Marriage is a covenant, a promise between a man and a woman that they will be faithful to each other for the rest of their lives. And it's consummated in becoming one flesh and it pictures, therefore, this relationship between God and his people. Because God makes an unbreakable, eternal covenant with us. And we are united with God 
in a way that will never be broken. You see, marriage is the shadow of what is a far greater substance that is Christ and the church. And then thirdly, third positive on this, due to the covenant relationship that that both salvation and marriage is, the Bible teaches us that our bodies are not our own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 says, Do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So our bodies are God's to honor God with. But also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4, we are taught that our bodies also are our spouses. Uh, Paul writes, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now that's not talking about um, some horrible uh, picture you may have in your mind about a a controlling uh, husband or wife. It's talking about the key word there is yield. We give ourselves over to our spouses in a way that our body is their body. And their body is our body. And so sex outside of these boundaries not only takes away something from God but also takes away something from your current or your future spouse. Because the picture the Bible gives us is that this is a beautiful thing, an intimate thing between one man and one woman for life. There is a beauty in God's design that pictures the beautiful relationship he has with us. And so when Jesus talks of adultery, and next time when he talks on divorce, this background must be borne in mind. If we forget what marriage is in the Bible, his teaching on adultery and divorce does not make sense. So, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. And with this high view of marriage in mind that Jesus has, and we see this, by the way, later on in Matthew in chapter 19, Jesus' view of marriage goes right back to Genesis chapter 2. We can begin to see that the Pharisees and teachers of the law in their interpretation of adultery, made a shallow definition of adultery. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, the command, you shall not commit adultery, is from the Bible. It's the seventh of the Ten Commandments, so it's found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. So as we saw with murder, the law seems to agree with the religious leaders here. But the problem with their interpretation was that they saw adultery as purely the act of sexual relations with another person's spouse. Now remember, when Jesus says here, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's not saying the Old Testament was wrong. He is saying your interpretation, how you're living this out, is totally wrong, totally shallow. So they thought that they, they, they were okay if they had not slept with another person's spouse. So they had basically a very narrow definition of sexual sin and a very broad definition of sexual purity. They thought they were pure and they had not sinned so long as they had not physically had sex with another man's wife. Well, today, our definition of adultery is extremely narrow. Our idea of what is sexually pure is extremely broad. 
Most would agree today, if you go and do a survey, I don't suggest you do this, but if you go and have a survey and go and knock on some doors and say, well, do you think that it's wrong to have sex with another person's spouse? Most people would say, yes, of course it's wrong. And in fact, along with murder, probably being number one of, I've never murdered, so I must be okay, adultery is probably number two, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm right with God because I've never murdered, well, and I've never committed adultery. Now, there are, in, in our culture, our definition is, is narrow, though, because although there are some boundaries you know, in, in our society which are a good thing, so we all, most people agree sex should be consensual, uh, not incestuous, it must be age-appropriate, but apart from that, anything goes. Well, the definition as, uh, that definition, as well as That of the religious leaders here is a shallow definition of adultery. If you think that I've never committed adultery because I've never been with another person's spouse, it's always been age appropriate, uh, it's always been consensual, um, and it's never been incestuous, then therefore I am fine. If that's your view, Jesus says, too shallow. Rather, Jesus talks in verse 28 of a deeper definition of adultery. Look at verse 28. So that your interpretation is this, but, in, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Righteousness is about the heart. We've seen that all through this, haven't we? It's all about the heart. The spirit of the law is more important than the letter of the law. So let's be clear what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says that lust is adultery. Lust is adultery. The big point in adultery here is that it is a heart problem. It is the heart that needs changing if we're to have righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. So this means that Jesus is also talking about covetousness. The Pharisees and teachers of the law missed that part out, didn't they? But commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's, what's the first one? Wife. So Jesus speaks of lust as adultery. So let's get very uh, practical here. What does this mean? Jesus is talking about looking a person up and down and undressing them with our eyes. Now I speak to the men. But how often when you see a woman, what do you look at? Don't we so often do this? You know know it's true. Jesus is talking about imagination here. He is talking about looking down people's tops and looking up their skirts. He's talking about watching television programs and films that show sex or people dressed in such a way that you look at them lustfully. Jesus is talking about pornography, which has become so easy for us to access in these days. How easy it is to click that link and visit that page, and and we think no one can see. Jesus is talking about, and this applies not just to men, I think perhaps even more to women, about reading about the sex lives of celebrities in magazines and novels which are sexually explicit. You can go to the newsagents and you look at the shelves and you can see that the headlines that some of these magazines have are all about somebody's sex life. 
reading about those things, taking pleasure in those sorts of things, is adultery. It's another form of lusting in the heart. You might not be uh, lusting after it, after doing it yourself, but you want to see other people or read about other people doing it. Now we'll see uh, uh, when we come to the next verses how perhaps we can deal with that practically. But you can see, I hope, that adultery is so much deeper and wider than just, I've not had sex with another person's spouse. Now it can be easy to think that this just relates to men, partly because Jesus says, if you, lust, if you look at a woman lustfully in, uh, in your heart, you've committed adultery. But to read this and apply it only to men, or to even married people, because he talks of adultery, is to treat what he's saying here in such a way that you're reading the letter of the law rather than the spirit and doing exactly what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing. Jesus refers to the heart here, and the heart is the root of all sexual sin, and so we can say that Jesus is alluding here to all forms of sexual immorality, not just for men, but for women too. In fact, some scholars interpret verse 28 to say something slightly different, which is rather than look lustfully, they would say, um, if uh, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman, uh, sorry, who, who makes, who, who would make her lust after him. You see, so somebody that wants the man to lust after them. Some people interpret it uh, that way. Uh, the best way of explaining it is in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 25. It contains both. Do not lust, after, lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. So here we have the active lusting after her, or wanting to be lusted after, wanting to be looked at. And so in terms of wanting to be looked at, it is right that we include within this command for adultery, modesty, how we dress. Now while lustful looks is not exclusively common to men, but mostly, immodesty is where it mostly applies to women. Now, I'm told uh, by our young people that I'm not a fashion expert, and I'm not here uh, to describe uh, how exactly you're supposed to dress. I'm here to teach the Bible, and the Bible teaches about this. But first of all, let's look at what Jesus is saying here. There is a difference, okay, a difference between being attractive and seductive. Jesus has just condemned men looking lustfully at a woman. Now, a man cannot be excused for looking at a woman because she's dressed in such a way she shows a lot. So, in other words, if I look lustfully at a woman, I can't go and say to God, well, she shouldn't have been dressed like that. No. I shouldn't have looked. Okay, so that's not an ex- this is not um, a man standing here making excuses for men looking lustfully at women. Okay? But in the interest of loving our neighbour, we should be as helpful as we can to help each other in our battles against sin. And so to the, to the women, I say, as a man, in the interest of loving men, be modest. Because it is harder for a man uh, to, to... It's harder for a man 
if a woman is dressed immodestly, to not commit, to, to not commit adultery. So love the men in the church through modesty. Now, uh, Paula was shopping uh, recently, uh, and a shop assistant told her something which uh, was very uh, helpful, I think, uh, in the context of what we're talking of here. The shop assistant said these words, Eyes are always drawn to skin. This is a non-Christian speaking, okay? Eyes are always drawn to skin. So whatever skin you are showing, a man is tempted to look at. So be careful on the skin you're showing in the name of loving your neighbour. Don't draw attention to yourself in this way. And do not lust after people lusting after you. Save it for your spouse, current or future, whose body it is. Our culture defines us by our body image, doesn't it? The cosmetic surgery industry is booming in our days. Culture defines us by externals, but the Bible talks differently. And this is what the Bible has to say on modesty. This isn't just Steve uh, having a having a, a talk about how people should dress. Listen to what the Bible says. Here is uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. It speaks to wives, but this applies to all women. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now this isn't saying, you know, you know get cheap clothes. But it's saying how we dress is important. It talks about our hearts. How you dress talks about what's in your heart. And you will be surprised, and I say this as a man, how much more attractive a woman is by letting the internal beauty shine through. Now, there's nothing wrong to to want to look attractive, but you know the difference between attractive and seductive. You know. And if you are unsure, ask your dad or your brother, because they know. And there's nothing wrong in admiring the beauty in the opposite sex. But you know the difference between someone looking nice and lusting after them. In, uh, elsewhere in uh, the Bible, Paul talks about treating each other as brothers and sisters. And I think that's helpful. We, we should treat each other as, as brothers and sisters. And then any of you that's got siblings, you'll know you don't look at them in any other way. That's how we should treat each other, as God's family. Now some of you may be laughing at this. I mean some of you are probably laughing because Steve's talked about how to dress. But some of you may be laughing thinking, well, this is really old fashioned. You know, what a what a bunch of fuddy duddies. But I would urge you, rather than think this old fashioned, look at what Jesus says in terms of the seriousness of adultery. Look at verses 29 and 30. Before we read that, our initial response, by the way, to this is always this. You'll hear this so often. But Jesus doesn't really mean cut your hand off. 
Don't start there. Start with the shock that Jesus means. This is serious. Take this in, what he's saying. So verse 29. If your right hand, or right eye, causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The big point here is adultery leads to hell. And in the New Testament, there are numerous, I think there are seven, vice lists. Lists of sins that lead to hell. And sexual immorality is in all of them and heads most of them. In God's eyes, this is serious. Now, hell is separation from God forever in conscious torment, where there is nothing and nobody that is good. Now, I'm not going to go into the doctrine of hell today, because it comes up later in Matthew Moore. But it's not somewhere where anybody wants to go. And Jesus says that it is, in fact, better to be without an eye or a hand in this life than to go there. And that, by the way, is not hyperbole. That is true. It is better. Literally, it is better to be without these things than to go to hell. And why does Jesus mention the eye and the hand? Probably because adultery is about what you see and what you do sexually. There's nothing wrong with the eye and the hand. God made them for us, but sin makes good things dangerous. And the right eye and the right arm were seen as the most important ones. And we'll see here that in order to flee sexual immorality, we've got to do away with some things that might be really important to us. Now, rather than actually gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands, which would not, by the way, deal with our hearts, if I gouged out my right eye, my left eye would still sin. Okay? I can still lust with my left eye and left hand just as well as my right eye and right hand. But rather, Jesus is talking here of radically cutting off what aids and abets sin in our lives. So in terms of sexual sin, get rid of the smartphone and get another one. Not another smartphone, a phone that's not smart if it's causing you to stumble. Get rid of those clothes that are worn so that someone will lust after you or that causes someone else to stumble. By the way, uh, in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus uses cutting off uh, hands and eyes, he talks about it in the context of causing others to stumble. So if your attire causes others to stumble, it is serious not just here in adultery, but in just the fact it causes others to stumble. Throw away DVDs and books or magazines that cause you to think lustfully. Cancel the subscription. Stop going to places that cause you to sin. You can even live without the internet. Mine's broke at the moment. I'm still here this afternoon. I lived. I'm fine. You can use it at someone else's home. You can go to a public place. Now this isn't prescribing here what you ought to do. Not everyone is caused to stumble with their phone, for example. But at least think through what does cause you to stumble. And take steps, radical steps, to flee sexual immorality. Because it is this serious. Dealing with the causes of sin won't necessarily change your heart. But a changed heart 
will deal with the causes of sin. You see? If I throw away my smartphone, it's not going to change my heart. But if my smartphone's causing me to sin, my changed heart will get rid of my smartphone. Part of having a changed heart is hating sin and cutting it out. Now it's worth asking the question, why is this so serious? Why does Jesus take sexual sin so seriously that he says it leads to hell? Well, the answer lies in what we said at the beginning. Sex is something designed by God for the benefit of mankind in the context of marriage. This is what is good for us, what is good for society as a whole. But marriage also images the relationship between God and his people, an exclusive relationship of love. And sexual immorality treats that God-given picture and therefore God himself with contempt. Now last week, we, last time we looked at murder. Why is murder so serious? We looked at Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. Murder was given the capital punishment because man was made in the image of God. Murder, and thus anger and so on, attacks the sanctity of life. Adultery attacks the sanctity of marriage and, is a, and, and, and fr- flies in the face in contempt on the image of God and his relationship with his people. That's why it's serious. Murder is serious because we are image bearers of God. Adultery is serious because we are image bearers of God and that relationship pictures that picture of God in his church. It is a most serious sin and it leads to hell. Well, last time we had a murder mystery that wasn't so hard to solve. We have all murdered in our hearts. And we don't need to hire a private detective to work out who in this room is an adulterer. All of us have sinned. All of us have sinned in this area and all of us continue to struggle. And thus all of us deserve hell. But as with the guilt we feel over murder, we come back to the beginning as we did before to the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We come to God and we say, I am guilty and I have no hope. And God reminds us that he sent Jesus to die for adulterers. Who did Jesus get criticised for eating with? Tax collectors and sinners. And you know why a lot of them were called sinners? It was a polite way of saying prostitutes. He ate with them. He loved them. He died for them. And he dies for us too. And when he dies for us, he wipes the slate clean and he makes us new. And the city of Corinth was a place of rampant sexual immorality. And many were saved from this. And one of the vice lists that I mentioned earlier is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is what it says. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, it heads the list here, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. (coughs) And get this, and that is what you were, you were, but 
You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of you were. But that is not what you are now, Christian. Remember that, and we said this before, these commandments are not here just to tell us something that we must do. When Jesus says, you shall not, it is a promise. God has made us new. And so I no longer have to commit adultery. It's a promise. You're not going to do this anymore. So when that image pops up on my computer screen that says, look at me, click here, I can say, I don't have to look at this. I am not a slave to sex God, but to Jesus Christ, who is far more glorious than this image. And he's promised me that I'm not going to do this anymore. And over time, as we keep radically cutting off the causes of sin, God changes us more and more until in glory, in heaven, the promise is finally and completely fulfilled, you shall not commit adultery. So brothers and sisters, let's not bow down to the sex God in our culture. But let's come to the God of the Bible. As dirty as we feel, he will forgive you. He will show you a better way that gives us the identity, the fulfillment and the freedom that sex God promises but never delivers. The identity and fulfillment and freedom that we all desire doesn't even come from earthly marriage. You see, we don't have to get married to be fulfilled. Rather, that comes, that the identity and fulfillment and freedom comes rather from what marriage pictures. The relationship we can have between, with Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church. And so the outcome of this message is not, well, I better get married then. No, rather, It is look at Jesus and be in a relationship with him. And as much as we want to be faithful to our spouses, present or future, let us rather focus more on being faithful to our husband, Jesus Christ. Because when our relationship is right with him, the others fall into place. Let's not commit spiritual adultery against such a loving and wonderful husband, Jesus Christ. Well, let us pray before we sing. Our Father, as we read these words from the Lord Jesus Christ, it touches our hearts because we know we are guilty in this area. And Father, we we don't want to bow down to the false gods of this world. We want to bow down to you. We want to be faithful to you, O God. And so we ask that you would forgive us of our adultery, the lustful looks, the inappropriate things we've read and, and worn even, the desires that we've had that have been just adultery. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, and fulfill in us the promise that we will no longer do this. We will not commit adultery. We want to be faithful to you, Lord. 
We want to take seriously what you say here. We want to cut off those things which cause us to stumble. And we look forward to a better vision of seeing you in glory and worshipping you forever. Focus our eyes on that, Lord. And may also, Father, we help each other in these areas. Help us, Lord, to be able to have conversations with each other, to talk to each other where we struggle, that we help each other along as brothers and sisters in holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's uh, finish with singing. Uh, First of all, we're going to sing a prayer, uh, Purify My Heart. And then reminding us that God uh, forgives us and gives us the power to live right. Uh, We're going to sing Grace Unmeasured. So let's stand uh, and let's sing.